Hi, I'm Eric Gurna of Development Without Limits, and this is Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. Welcome again to Please Speak Freely. In this episode, I was happy to be able to talk to Karen Pittman, the president and CEO of the Farm for Youth Investment, who's really legendary in the field of youth development for being a tireless advocate for the field, and more than that, for being an advocate for uh, looking at young people and families holistically to really making a strong stance that uh, things like social-emotional development, things skills like collaboration and communication should have equal importance to other areas of development and other skills. Uh, she's someone I've looked up to for a long time. I always read her column in Youth Today. If you don't know Youth Today, you should definitely check it out and check out um, Ms. Pittman's column in that publication. Um, she's always courageous and bold, um, and I was pleased to find out that she's also very kind and warm as a person um, and made me feel very comfortable. And so... Uh, you know, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Before we jump right into that conversation with Karen Pittman, I just want to take a couple of minutes to uh, make a small sort of personal statement. Uh, this, uh, Since the last episode came out, um, a sort of hero and mentor of mine passed away. Uh, James Wellborn was the city librarian for the city of New Haven. And I got to work with him a few years ago for a few years where he brought Development Without Limits and other partners together. Uh, to help support after-school programs and other kinds of youth programs in the city of New Haven, and to help to support the library to become a center for youth development, a center for youth work readiness, and for really a, a center for community. Uh, a lot of librarians have a lot of tradition behind them and don't see it as their job to come out from behind the desk uh, to engage with people and to um, create a library of the 21st century that's about books, but it's about more than books. And Mr. Wellborn was a visionary in that. Since he passed away, I've also learned that he was an amazing civil rights leader, uh, you know, before I got to know him and I, even as I knew him. I didn't know him in that light. I just knew him as someone who cared deeply about young people, cared deeply about uh, the city of New Haven and the community. Um, and he's someone who... I learned a lot from uh, one thing that I want to mention that I learned from Mr. Wellborn is I learned to not be defined by your job description and to not be defined by your institution. And that's something I carry with me always. And um, I'm sad that Mr. Wellborn's gone. I'm sad that I didn't get to have him as a guest on Please Speak Freely. And uh, I wish the best to, to his wife and everyone who knew and loved him. So this episode is dedicated to Mr. Wellborn with gratitude. And uh, without any further ado, let's jump right in to a conversation with Karen Pittman. So I'm delighted to be here with Karen Pittman, president and CEO of the Forum for Youth Investment, also the co-founder of the Forum for Youth Investment. 
Um, so welcome to Please Speak Freely. Thanks for, uh, thanks for agreeing to do this. Thanks for inviting me. I was, I was really eager to talk to you because through your writing, I've definitely followed your work over the years. You know, I read Youth Today every month or mm -hmm. however often Youth Today comes out. Um, and you know, always am interested to know what you have to say. And I, I, before I get into some of the things that I am eager to ask you about, I, I, I know that not everyone out there necessarily is familiar with your work. And I'd like to ask you to just describe briefly, what is it that you do? What's your job? Wow, what's my job? What well, is your job? <laughs> I suppose my job is actually to obviously be the CEO of the Forum Youth Investment. Uh, we call the forum an action tank. It sort of sits between bridging research, policy, practice, and advocacy um, around issues that are important to young people. Our job is really to work with leaders, whether those are practice leaders or policy leaders at the national, state, or local level, uh, to really make sure they're doing everything they can for young to make sure young people are ready for college, work, and life. Mm -hmm. um, so. Uh, I think my job is really to keep the trains moving, and we have a lot of trains here uh, at the forum uh, because we really do have work in that a very broad uh, space. Mm -hmm. uh, so the forum has, uh, for example, the Weikert Center uh, for Youth Program Quality, um, which we brought in through a joint venture with HighScope about four years ago, HighScope Educational Research Foundation. And that's really 15 people who are out in Ypsilanti, Michigan, really focused on uh, program quality intervention, helping communities and states build quality improvement systems mm -hmm. uh, with assessment and training to make sure that the programs that we run actually are strong and getting better um, and that there's the kind of sort of low stakes accountability structure in place that supports youth workers and program directors and whoever at the public or private level is funding programs. So that's sort of one end of our work which really has us with a lot of deep feet in a lot of states and communities in the practice space. Mm -hmm. um, and then we come to the other extreme and we have policy work that we do with uh, working at the state level in particular um, with the folks who run children's cabinets mm -hmm. um, or legislative councils when you're bringing those broad set of policymakers together across um, the departments or agencies to really figure out what's good for young people. Uh, and bringing that youth development perspective into that space uh, has really been an important part of our part of our work. Uh, and then uh, in the middle, obviously, we do uh, lots of things from writing uh, compendia about developmental outcomes or quality improvement systems, uh, issue briefs, things like that. And uh, more on the communication side, we are also the home for Spark Action, uh, which is the sort of the, the new and updated version of Connect for Kids, for those mm -hmm. who are old enough to remember Connect for Kids, that really is about bringing information and ways to act on it uh, to the, the field broadly defined, young people who care about young people. And that that's actually also works for young people themselves. So Spark Action really has an audience of both youth and adult leaders at the state and local level who are really trying to make a difference for young people. Mm -hmm. So it's a broad organization. It takes a lot to keep all of those pieces hooked together. Uh, and about four years ago, uh, we actually also started the Ready by 21 partnership because mm -hmm. we realized that on the ground, if you're really going to argue that those people who invest in young people across a variety of, of, uh, of disciplines and systems need to have a table where they come together, we at the national level needed a way to get the, the organizations who represent those people to the table. So the Ready by 21 partnership has United Way the American Association of School Administrators, uh, Corporate Voices for Working Family, helping us get to the business community, 
the national state conferences, the conference of state legislatures, et cetera. So people who were in, whose organizations represent business, policy, practice, advocacy, uh, sort of community philanthropy, helping them make sure that their members are, have the incentives to come to the table and come to the table and form. Mm -hmm. So our, our roots are sort of in youth development. Um, we obviously spend a lot of time focused on out-of-school and community programs, which for us are really the insulation around the education pipeline, and we talk a lot about insulating that education pipeline. Uh, and uh, well, that's what keeps me busy. So organizations of 45 people yeah. trying to do a lot of different things. Yeah. Um, and really, even though we're here in D.C., we, we spend, we're mostly outwardly focused mm -hmm. um, working in states and communities. Great. That's a, a lot of things to juggle. And um, you, you mentioned one thing in the midst of all that that I want to sort of pick out and ask you about. Mm -hmm. um, and you said it sort of in the course of saying something else, but you said something about the – in terms of the work of the Weikert Center, um, something about low-stakes low accountability. Mm -hmm. And that phrase sort of flew out at me, and I'm, I'm wondering what, how, do you, how do you define that? Well, I think that the – the place all of us have to go and the, the forum uh, in general is really focused on helping leaders who are really trying to improve conditions and programs and communities, helping them have standards mm -hmm. to really gauge whether or not what we're doing is the best it can be, um, helping them have ways to assess against those standards, and then giving them really practical targeted solutions, whether those solutions are ideas or their training or their technical assistance to really improve against the standards so that we can actually measure success. And the last piece of what we do is really helping folks actually track and measure success. So standards, solutions, and success are sort of the general themes that link together all the work at the forum. Uh, in, and you know this very well, in the out-of-school space, we really have struggled with defining standards. Mm -hmm. um, We've certainly struggled with having control over, you know, sort of making sure that the standards against which we're judging ourselves really do ring true to the kind of work we think we're doing with young people mm -hmm. and the kind of the specific kind of expertise that we think more informal community programs can bring in terms of a range of experiences and supports and opportunities for young people. So we struggle with those standards. Um, but we also then, whether we're getting money from United Way, um, or 21st century or you know, wherever the dollars are flowing in from, mm -hmm. we really do struggle with that accountability word. Um, and the more we can move from, you know, sort of reporting for compliance purposes, how many kids did you see, how many whatevers did you do, and a lot of what was there both in the early childhood and initially in the youth space was compliance information. Someone comes in and checks off that you're following the regulations. Moving that into accountability where we have some kind of a shared accountability for not just doing the widgets, mm -hmm. but actually working against standards, and then ideally moving up into really data-driven decision-making or the continuous improvement model, where accountability really is for our improvement, not just to be able to get the next check. Mm. So what, what we know from both research and practice is that when you move into that accountability space and you really want to develop a set of shared accountability in the field, across providers, but also shared accountability between providers and whoever the funders are, um, that it really is better to make that what we would call low-stakes accountability, where the first thing that happens when we're trying to introduce standards and assessments and get folks to really be honest about assessing uh, and then looking at those assessments and having incentives to actually improve against those assessments, 
you're not going to do that. You're going to really, the system is going to be flawed from the beginning if the stakes against those assessments are too high. Mm -hmm. If I think if I don't get a good score, I'm going to lose my funding or I'm going to get fired as a youth worker or whatever, I'm not going to step into that with the right spirit. So low stakes accountability are ones in which we really practice first, bringing in the idea of standards and assessment, Mm -hmm. practicing various ways of assessment, whether those are observation, self-observation, peer observation, external reviewer observation, figuring out how we bring those observations back into the workplace in a way that people really see them mm-hmm. as an opportunity for improvement, and then reporting on the results. Ultimately, you do have to get to a place where there is, there is something associated with consistently not meeting sure. the standards. Um, but for that well, it's to not be, no stakes. It's, it's, it's not low no stakes. stakes. It's right. low stakes. But for that to be the first thing that happens yeah. really sort of warps the whole process. Yeah, that's I, that's a really concise way to put it. I think it's kind of a brave I, – I, it struck me as a brave phrase because high-stakes accountability is like this catchphrase you keep hearing over and over and over again. And to hear low-stakes accountability is kind of jarring. And I, I was immediately sort of attracted to it, like, ooh, I want to know what that's about. Yeah, and um, that's what you said exactly. We're yeah. not talking about no stakes. Right. So we're really not talking about – as long as you keep your numbers up and you've got kids flowing through the program, you're right, fine. Right. So we want to move out of that model, mm-hmm. which in, in some ways, you know, led to an old boy system of once you were funded, you were always funded and it was hard for new folks to get in. Or, But we do need to not go from that all the way to the other extreme. Right. Uh, so finding that place in the middle, I think, is where lots of lots of individual programs have been trying to work with their own staff, where provider networks in communities have been, and I think certainly where, you know, a range of public and private funders mm-hmm. have been in trying to have this kind of a sure. of a dance. Yeah. One of the reasons I was really eager to talk to you is because I see you um, as a real strong advocate for uh, youth development as being equally important to other approaches and other sorts of um, sets of objectives or whatever we want to call it. And um Lately, I've been feeling like um, that perspective is getting um, more and more marginalized in a lot of ways in the larger conversation. Um, do you feel like that's true? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's. I think. I think in some ways, if I had to roll the clock back, I would. I would question the language that we selected around youth development. Hmm. Um, and I, and in fact, we have questioned it. Obviously, I believe in youth development. I you know, started conversations about youth development. But when we're talking to folks outside of the youth development field, and we don't have to be very far outside, just even talking to educators mm-hmm. um, or health providers, somehow in early childhood development, we were able to think about early childhood development holistically um, and just recognize sort of intuitively that if we're going to develop young children, we have to pay attention to cognitive, social, civic, emotional, all together as a package. I think because by the time they get to school age and older, once we hit the formal education system, the academic piece has such prominence that it's, it's been difficult to have a conversation about youth development in the same way that we had a conversation about early childhood development Mm -hmm in which the cognitive development of young people is only one piece. It's an important piece, but it's only one piece. But it's such a dominant piece. And our metrics for success for young people by the time they hit school, academics is such a dominant 
strand right. that it's really been very it's just a constantly an uphill battle to try to keep youth development on the table compounded by the fact that we don't have very good measures of youth right. development so we're always struggling with well if you don't want us to measure it by you know our traditional academic measures of grades test scores etc what is it that you want us to measure mm-hmm. and we don't collect universally so we're either in the academic space or we shift over into the risky behavior space so one of the things that we have done um, sort of as a part of trying to sort of restart the conversation about youth development from a different perspective, uh, and we started doing this about six or seven years ago, when we were talking to folks outside of the youth development field, was really to talk about readiness and just say, we're here to talk to you about making sure every young person is ready for college work in life. And we want them to be ready yeah. by 21. They can be ready before that, but we really want them to be ready <laughs> to be able to right. transition out of secondary into post-secondary successfully, to be able to, to move into the labor force full-time successfully, if that's their choice, to be ready to move firmly into life, whether that means living on their own, having a kid, mm-hmm. you know, participating civically, all those things that we want young people to be able to do as young adults, we really want them to be ready to do that by 21. Now, we didn't do fancy market testing on that. We literally, since our job is to be out talking to people a lot, we just tried it, and it, it evolved over time because we found that when we were going in to talk to policymakers, educators, et cetera, and we said we're here to talk to you about youth development, by the time we had dissuaded them that their definition of youth development, which was, oh, you're here to talk to me about after school. You're mm-hmm. here to talk to me about mentoring. You're here to talk to me. They would pick one thing, and then we'd have to say, no, we want to talk to you about more than that. Our time was up. Yeah. So because we wanted to yeah. get to whatever the point was, mm-hmm. we actually st- stopped using the term youth development and just started talking about and painting a holistic picture of young people. For us, saying we want to talk to you about making sure every young person is ready, built development. It's an alternative word for development. It built sort of development in. So once I say we want to make sure they're ready, I can back up and talk about it. If they're going to be ready at 21, we have to pay attention to them at 6 and 13 and 18. College, work, and life were all things that we collect data on. We have an opinion about. Mm -hmm. Those are sort of the traditional transition to adulthood benchmarks that somehow you completed your education, you got a job, and you did something to move into adult life, whether Mm -hmm. that was living on your own, starting a family, et cetera, getting married. So those words resonated with everybody, and we were able to sort of set the stage broadly pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And then we could go on to talk about what we wanted to do. Now, in that space, what we started to do was to really talk further about a readiness target and that if young people are going to be ready, we really have to hit all three sort of concentric circles in that target. Mm -hmm. Let's go ahead and make that middle, the bullseye of the target, academic and vocational competence, Mm -hmm. since that's really the primary driver and definition of success in this country. You know, and at this point, we're talking about do they have some kind of post-secondary credential or degree, mm-hmm. and at some point, are they actually employed full-time in the workforce unless they've really chosen not to be? So let's put that in the middle as sort of the long-term academics, the, the long-term goals for basically whether young people are being productive. The outer ring of the bullseye, let's let that be healthy and safe which is measured mostly by our measurements of risky behaviors and risky circumstances. Right. Too early pregnancy, substance abuse, delinquency, 
child abuse, et cetera. What all used to be called things. prevention. Mostly. Used to be called all of those yeah. topics that are sort of in those prevention fields or yeah. in the treatment fields. Mm -hmm. Those are the measures that we're going to have, the things that are measured by the YRBS, the Youth Risk Behavior Surveys. Mm -hmm. um, those are the things that we're going to – we have lots of data on those that are coming out of our public health systems, our juvenile justice and child welfare systems. Give us lots of information about – whether young people are either engaging in risky behaviors or are in risky circumstances that somehow limit their success. Mm -hmm. The middle of the ring, now I've sort of got it, you know, sort of wedged in by both sides. The middle of the ring is where we really don't collect information consistently. Mm -hmm. And sort of selfishly, if we're going to be a youth development field, we actually need to spend more time having conversations about that middle ring, whether we call those developmental assets 21st century skills, soft skills, life skills. Global competencies. Global competencies. <laughs> yes. It would be great if we picked a language uh -huh. <laughs> and started to and, and actually started to have some level of measurement that goes in that space. Mm -hmm. Because what research tells us is that when young people have the skills and competencies in that middle space, let's call them global competencies, they're both more likely to be productive, to be academically and vocationally on track, and they're less likely to engage in risky behaviors or more likely to be resilient in risky circumstances. Right. So we've got plenty right. of research that tells us that when young people have those kind of social, emotional, problem-solving, civic skills and competencies, they're better able to get outcomes in the things that we traditionally measure, but we don't spend a lot of time measuring those. And so you're absolutely right that because the conversation, and I think it sort of the pendulum swings back and forth between whether our our dominant frame is uh, is a risky behavior frame, or our dominant frame is an educational and vocational attainment frame. But we can't get it to be in the middle, mm -hmm. and really be a developmental frame, mm -hmm. um, even though we have lots of evidence that if we actually just measured whether young people were building those developmental competencies and using them, we probably have a pretty good predictor that they were also doing well academically and vocationally and doing well in terms of managing risky behaviors. Right. When I'm talking about the youth development approach being um, marginalized, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of that, uh, everything that you just said. I'm also just thinking about there's, a, there's something that is – I guess more sinister to me. And I don't know if sinister is maybe too strong of a word. Maybe I'm too much of a conspiracy theorist or mm -hmm. something, but there's something seems to be that seems to be marginalizing youth development as being connected to a larger set of perspectives that is about something other than material success or something um, easily, quanti easily kind of quantifiable success. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what I'm thinking of is the the response that we sometimes get in in our work where we're talking about social and emotional learning where we're looking at how to create learning situations where young people are um you know practicing the kinds of what you might call 21st century skills mm -hmm. or or um developmental assets or whatever in the course of their everyday life in the course of doing other things um where we talk about cooperation and where mm -hmm. we talk about teamwork and those are um often dismissed as, as quote unquote soft skills um, and sometimes even um, made fun of or put in the category of it, it was just said to me yesterday by by someone um, who in the in the 
course of paying a compliment about our skills at, at pro providing professional development uh, mentioned something about um, how we, quote unquote, make everybody sing Kumbaya. Um, now, putting aside the the diss to the kum song Kumbaya that's that's there, which there's nothing wrong with the song mm -hmm. Kumbaya in the first place, but it's th that it's a shorthand for um, flaky, touchy feely, yep. fun but superficial and not important. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe I'm overly sensitive to this yeah. um, because it's come up so many times. Um, but there's it's it's like it seems to me like the message is you're either doing something sort of fun and social, emotional and all that, or you're doing something serious and important. It's, it, am I alone in that? Have you felt that sort of, um, no, you're, you're, you're not alone in it, but I, at all, at all. Um, and I do think that that's a, it's a, it's a sentiment that I think is, we actually were making progress. Um, and, and with no child left behind and no child left behind had some, has had some upsides in terms of really being able to, to get the country focused on, uh, disparities. Right. Um, in, in education quality and education outcomes, but the focus, you know, but the measurement side of it, which basically had everybody asking the question of, are your people on track in terms of test scores, uh, uh, and moving grade really sort of narrowed the definition of what's important, even inside of the school setting. It really sort of pulled everything into if they're not, you know, reading and doing math and learning geography. Mm -hmm. It's fluff. Right. So that, fluff, that, yeah. that further, I mean, you can talk to educators who will tell you that really it, it's had a, it's had a huge impact on what they can do in the school building. Mm -hmm. It's marginalized things in the building mm -hmm. um, that educators know are important to make sure the young people are engaged. Right. Um, and so, you know, levels of disengagement in school and disconnectedness in, in school during the school day are really associated with taking away those things in which young people were able to bring a little bit more of themselves. It wasn't one-way content learning. They actually were able to contribute to experience, to be creative, to do problem solving, to work right. in teams, right. all of those things that we talk about. Um, we've done a couple of things. I think one thing that has helped, <clears throat> excuse me, has helped and, and can help more is that, that the business community has been speaking up on this. The reason mm. we have corporate voices from work for working families as our uh, lead partner in this, uh, in the Ready by 21 partnership uh, on the business side, is that early on we began talking to them and the Partnership for 21st Century Skills about the importance of, of sort of talking about this larger set of competencies. And they worked with the Partnership for 21st Century Skills, the conference board, and, and other leading business uh, organizations to really start a body of research about what business says. Mm -hmm. Now, at the point at which and their first survey was a survey of over 400 employers, um, all kinds and sizes, all across different industries, in which they presented sort of a adapted list of the 21st century skills and asked, one, how important are these skills for when you're thinking about entry-level workers that you're hiring, whatever your content is that you're hiring, into entry-level jobs that mm -hmm. require a high school diploma, some college, or a four-year college degree? And their answer was, the things that are important to them are communication skills, problem-solving skills, work ethic, right. teamwork, sure. the kind of things that we're talking about. Yeah. All right. Um, those are flexibility. Those are the things that they're really looking for. Of course, they want you to be able to read and have basic math, but right. that wasn't the, those weren't the things that rose to the top of the list. Um, they were then asked, 
Now think about the young people with high school diplomas who come applying for jobs. How many of them have those skills? Mm -hmm. Well, their report was that four out of 10 young people with a high school diploma are deficient, are so grossly deficient in those skills that they can't hire them. Hmm. So we clearly have a disconnect, which we can talk about. And then we, as the youth field, it it starts to bring legitimacy to just narrowing in on academic content is not delivering to the workforce young people who are actually ready for work. The same conversation was being had with higher education institutions. It's not just that they're showing up needing to take remedial courses because they're behind in reading and math. Mm -hmm. They also really don't have the social and civic skills, time management, all the things that you suddenly need to have when someone isn't telling you, spoon-feeding you education. Young people are showing up on college campuses not having self-regulation skills, time management skills, problem-solving skills, et cetera. And young people know they don't have these skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think really a part of the challenge that we need to step into as, you know, as, as the youth work field is really coming out of the space of defending what we do mm-hmm. to coming into the space of defending why this broader skill set is so important and joining forces with folks like higher educa- ed- education mm-hmm. um, and, and employers who are essentially all criticizing the output, if you want to call it output, of the K-12 system. And you also have a good number of K-12 educators who would also join that conversation mm-hmm. and say, yeah, we've, we've narrowed this thing down too much. But I do think we really have to start there. Um, because, and we have to, to your point, Eric, I think we also have to continue to, to demonstrate the research, but also just talk about the value of these skills for themselves. They have an intrinsic value. We want people who are creative, who are problem solvers, who work in teams, who have a sense of civic, uh, uh, you know, civic you know, duty and connection. Those are things we want because we want them, not because they're instrumental in helping us make sure that they're learning geography or mm-hmm. not getting pregnant. They also happen to be valuable for helping young people and adults manage risky behaviors and perform better. But we need those because they're valuable, and we don't have enough of a dialogue, as you said, about those skills. It then doesn't it, – it, because we know the way young people build those skills is through trial and error, is yeah. through experience. Right. It's not by sitting in a chair and reading about them. Being taught cooperation. Be, right. You can't you, – you're not – you know, it's the whole self-esteem movement over again. I right. can't tell, right. teach you that. Right. Because we know that. And that's really what drives how we develop our programs and how we relate to young people. What it does is for someone walking in comparing school, which by definition is serious, to what we do, is you get that sort of off the cuff, well, what you do clearly can't be very serious because these young people are running around and enjoying themselves. They're not sitting in chairs, right. you know, looking at a board or a yeah. screen. And we have to really, you know, sort of educate folks constantly on that. I think the easiest way to do that is to, is to have the young people uh, mm-hmm. talk about that. I've just been amazed. I was at a conference about a year ago um, that was bringing together folks that are that are sort of looking at how to bring more technology into the classroom, not mm-hmm. just in terms of kids in front of computer screens, but how to really redefine classrooms through technology. Um, and uh, I'll think of it later. One of the foundations um, up in the Boston area mm-hmm. um, that does a lot of uh, a lot of work focused on education, and actually paid for a series of videos to be made 
in schools that are using more of these innovative approaches to education. And they were interviewing young people, asking them, you know, where they learned the most. And consistently, the settings that they reported where they learned the most were the kind of settings that have the characteristics of what we would call a good, you know, a good developmental environment. Right. They were not, you know, four times out of five, it was not my math class. Right. Even if it was an in-school setting, it was in drama, mm -hmm. in art, you know, as I was working on a play, as I was on the student council, it was things that actually were allowing people, young people to actually practice these, mm -hmm. practice these skills. I think we do have to think about how you bring assessment into this space. And that's not going to be a paper and pencil test or a multiple choice test. But I think the more we're doing things like some of the, uh, some of the new tech high schools mm -hmm. are actually have report cards that actually have the teacher and the students naming the total number of skills that they're going to be learning in that course. Mm. Content counts for about half. So if it's an American Studies program, American Studies course, eight-week, 12-week course, half of your grade is going to come from did you learn the content. Right. But the other half is going to come from did you demonstrate and grow in these other skill areas. Right. And that means that the way the class is taught has to be focused on were you working in a team? Did That's you get great. to do an yeah. oral presentation? Right. Am I grading you on your communication skills? Mm -hmm. you know? yeah. Did I give you problems and you were able to demonstrate problem-solving skills? Right. Do you have a work ethic? Did you turn your work in on time? Mm -hmm. some, something that you said there, I, I was, it's like music to my ears. I'm coming from a, a conference that I'm here in D.C. for around uh, 21st Century Community Learning Centers. You know, and that's what I was presenting at this morning. We'll be presenting at tomorrow. Um, and, you know, that's coming out of the U.S. Department of Education and 21st Century mm -hmm. Community Learning Centers are, you know, pretty focused, at least in, in theory, on supporting um, academic success. Um, I mean, if you really read the, the legislation, mm -hmm. they're really focused on the broad range of, yeah. of skills. But the, the focus coming from um, many states' Department of Education is focusing on academic success and specifically improvements in testing and grades. Um, and... But the, the people running the programs are still mostly, you know, people who have a real passion for uh, social emotional learning, creative arts and enrichment and those sorts of things. And um, what I'm hearing more and more is um, defending some of those things, but not, as you said, their intrinsic value, but the defending them as being in service yes. of something else. So we have to do art because through art, we That's can right. teach um, you know, we can teach whatever it is, geometry through visual art, exactly. or we can teach, um, uh, we can teach math through music. And that's not, I, I don't mean to, um, diminish those ideas. Yeah. Cause I think you can do amazing things with teaching math, math through music, right. et, et cetera. Um, but there's also something really value about valuable about, um, young people learning artistic development for their success as a human being. And, right. you know, one of the things that I think is great about the, the ready by 21 is that it's, it's not just ready for, uh, work and college. It's ready for, is it work, co college, work and life. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, what I'm really interested in is young people being really ready for life right. and life can include work and college and exactly. marriage and relationships and, um, dealing with difficult situations and, uh, tragedy and family and mm -hmm. joy and everything else. And that, um, you know, being a whole human being can, can mean being able to express yourself creatively and collaborate and all yeah. those things in and of themselves. They're important. 
Um, and I feel sometimes, especially at a conference like this one sponsored by the U S department of education, I feel a little bit like a voice in the wilderness. You know, like I say, I, I, I mentioned those things and there's a, a silence that comes because people are so used to, um, we can talk about art, but as long as it's connected to mm-hmm. a concrete academic skill, um, that's, uh, it's depressing to me that we have to, that we feel that we have to put ourselves through yeah. that. It is also risky, um, and I, I, I agree with you. Um, I think there's a real. I think that there is a real danger um, in our doing that. Now we we have certainly we've certainly had success in doing that, and and this mm-hmm. the movement has gone from sort of being an active revolt of that's not what we're we have nothing to do with academic competence. You guys do that from nine to three. We're building these social and civic and emotional skills over here from right. three on. Right. So complete separation. For a variety of reasons, including that it's true that if that you know, as I said, this, this the the skills that we're building and competencies really are in the middle. They really do have an impact on the other two, and so in some ways, it's ludicrous for us to continue to argue. We just build these skills, and they have no connection to sure. academic and vocational competence or improving risky behaviors. Right. Also, just from a pure funding perspective, it's ludicrous because the dollars are either out in risky behavior space or in academic and vocational space. Right. Um, so we have to, in some ways, go where the money is. But again, I think the way that we go where the money is without losing our way um, and without doing a disservice to the importance of those developmental competencies is to spend more time simply arguing for their Import, their intrinsic importance. Mm-hmm. So that the sentence that you just said, imagine if we, let's set a goal at 10 years from now, it's not, it's not just that folks in the out-of-school space have to say, this is why what we're doing can help young people improve their math scores. We actually also have people who are teaching math say, and this is why what I'm doing in my classroom mm-hmm. is going to help mm-hmm. young people build their you know, their teamwork mm-hmm. skills and their work ethic skills. That for me is what's so intriguing about that simple idea of mm-hmm. having a balanced report card. Yeah. Because once we change on a day-to-day level how young people define, and, and the people who work with them, define and measure their progress in a balanced way across academic, social, you know, emotional, civic competencies, if we can get that into the water, that they're defined and measured equally, then we've got a table at which the folks who mostly think academic can come and say, I know how to teach history, but I don't really, I need some help in understanding how I can really help my young people build these skills. Because mm-hmm. I'm getting to the end of the semester and they've learned their history, but they're really not getting any better in this other stuff. And then youth workers can say, oh, well, we can help you with that. That's a piece of cake. We know how to help young people build those social competencies. We can help you. Now, we've, we're getting that into, you know, it's, it's getting into K-12 legislation. It's getting into K-12 policy. Groups like CASEL, the Collaborative for Academic Social and Emotional Learning, mm-hmm. now are really moving this forward. And if you haven't, you wanted somebody else to interview, you might want to talk to Roger Weisberg, who runs CASEL. And now, did they change their name? Is is the collaborative? I thought it was the collaborative for the advancement of social and emotional learning. Did they actually change it to they collaborative did. for academic social and emotional learning? Yes. Lear- social and emotional learning. Yes. So academic. That's so interesting. Academic is in there. Yeah. So you can ask him the right. logic behind that, but it's a lot of what I just said. Yeah, that's interesting. But again, 
Castle is focused really on getting this into the school. So I, I think until we un, until we can can have definitions of readiness that span from you know they're reducing they're managing risky behaviors and circumstances, they're working towards academic and vocational competence, and they're building this broader set of developmental global competencies. Until we can have definitions of readiness that really are owned across the systems mm-hmm. and are measured in reasonably equal ways, or at least in reasonably accessible and scalable ways, until we get there, we're going to stay in this space of sort of ping-ponging back and forth. Once we have those, and once we really could have a couple of places in which schools and communities are using that same definition, and then I can sit down and say, you know, when I'm doing my, when I'm putting, you know, my assessments together for kids, the content part counts for 70%, but this other part counts for something. And then we can say, well, you know, we're not the content people. So having them, you know, get stronger in content only counts for 30% of what we're working on. We've got the other 70. Right. And the community can say, great, that's balanced. You guys know what your priorities are. You know what your priorities are. But all of us are respecting the fact that we're trying to build skills and competencies across this broader range. Mm-hmm. That lets each of us do what we do best. And then the differences in practice can flow from the differences in how we define and prioritize the competencies that we're working on mm-hmm. without having these things feeling that they're, they're competing with each other. Right. And anytime you talk to young people, they're going to tell you any setting in which you're actually trying to build all those things at the same time. I mean, I don't want something that's content-free <laughs> Right, sure. In the youth space. I don't just want to be sitting here building my social skills right. through just doing strange exercise. For three hours. Exactly. Yeah. I don't want to come do icebreakers for three hours. Yeah. You know, I want to learn to build those skills because I'm, you know, off, you know, at the mayor's office talking right. about why we need more, you know, recreation dollars or right. why we need to change how we test kids in school. Well, I need to be doing something that makes sense. Yeah, and, and also, you know, it reminds me of a, a mentor of mine, Dr. Paul Heckman. He's out of uh, UC Davis. He's done a lot of work with LA's Best. He He talks about... Um, that history class should be learning how to think like a historian and learning how to be a historian. Mm-hmm. And science class should be learning how to think and, and act like a scientist. And all of those things, historians don't operate in a vacuum. They they reference other historians. They work with other historians. They mm-hmm. work with many other professionals, scientists especially. Mm-hmm. It's a very collaborative field. So it's, it's, it's even bringing it even closer together that it's like the – the cooperative skills, the teamwork skills, and all of those other things are an integral part of um, really being a scientist. Mm-hmm. That it's not just learning um, content from a textbook that you can um, recite back in a test or presentation. Um, and to me, that's when it, it really all comes together. And then everybody sort of loses them, themselves in the experience of it as well. And that's right. real engagement, yeah. I think, is when you know you just sort of forget that you're supposed to be doing this. Yeah, I think that, I think that makes absolute sense. And And you know, the, the point that you just said about, you know, we're not all just doing icebreakers. I, I do think we also, um, the other thing that we need to acknowledge is just as there are a range of competencies that young people need to build, content, knowledge, and, co- and competencies that they need to build, there are also a range of settings in mm-hmm. which they can spend their time. And and the quality of those settings it's, can, can go from, you know, bad – basically, I mean, in other words, sort of not fully supporting development because it's too focused on didactic content to bad because it's not, because it's over here just focused on fun. Right. And so I think while we can bristle at 
people walking into uh, a youth development uh, organization or, or program and saying, oh, you're just doing fun, we do have to take responsibility for saying, if that's not what we're about, then we actually really, we, what is it that we're looking for? And there really is a middle space mm -hmm. in whether it's, you know, project-based learning in a classroom uh, or it's, you know, it's sort of a learning that has an arc to it in a youth program. We're seeing young people who are actively engaged yeah. in some kind of structured, focused work yeah. that has meaning to them, whether it's putting on a play or, you know, you know building a sign, building a robot or whatever it is that they're doing, uh, you know, or planting a community garden mm -hmm. and they and building a robot are, that does a play building a robot that does a play yeah. in a garden yeah. exactly all of those things that, that that's that's what we're looking for and that that kind of a developmental setting with modest variation can be created across multiple environments and so right. the standards are really youth-driven standards the right. standards for what makes a good developmental setting really have to be they have to be allowed to flourish inside of the constraints of the system in which you're working. Mm -hmm. And if you're a school, those, that system is more of a bureaucratic system in which your constraints are policy constraints and, mm -hmm. and time constraints of the bell rings every 45 minutes or you know, whatever, physical constraints. And if you're a youth organization, the constraints really may be funding constraints um, or physical space constraints and that you don't have adequate space to do what you want to do. But I think we have to sort of think about it that way mm -hmm. and have more conversations in which we're really saying these are the competencies young people need to build. Mm -hmm. These are the kind, the characteristics of the settings that we know help them build these kind of competencies. From where we're coming, how do we best maximize, you know, having the chance that a young people, young person can find themselves in a developmentally rich setting throughout the day throughout the school year as they move from one place to another. Mm -hmm. And that one place to another increasingly is going to have to include places that we would prefer them not to be, whether those are juvenile justice programs, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, their child welfare settings. I mean, we also need to at some point recognize and look at the numbers of young people who are in settings that are not, they're not there by choice. Right. And that's a whole different podcast, but just to sort of throw that out there, that as we're having these conversations, yeah. We want to acknowledge that youth development practice and principles have been slowly making their way into those other sure. settings. Yeah, and you know, it's it's interesting because I mean, I've we've often talked about within our organization that we work in after school because they'll have us. You know, it just happens to it's just a time of day, mm -hmm. but it happens to be where um, there's a there's an interest in the, the kind of youth development approach um, and the kind of enrichment that that we focus on. We'd be just as happy to work in any other kind of context mm -hmm. as long as we can work to help improve the qualities of learning environments for young people. Um, and I think that there's the most potential to improve the qualities of those environments in the in juvenile justice settings, in those other settings, because, I mean, there's there's always the most potential when things are at their worst. Right. Um, and I know at least in New York, there's at least the, the state itself is, is trying to um, shift the mentality and the approach of the juvenile justice system towards a more developmental approach. Um, it's like turning a gigantic mm -hmm. ship. Um, but, you know, at least there's effort being made in that direction. And you see it in the language of the RFPs and you see it in the language of the technical assistance and, and that sort of thing. I want to um, shift gears a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I, I An article caught my eye recently uh, because I, I, I saw something in the headline um, about 
focusing on poor people's strengths. And I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting, you know, that what, what's happening here? Because, you know, we take a strength-based approach. You don't usually see that kind of thing in the news. And I thought, you don't also usually see the phrase poor people in the mm-hmm. news. So, and I don't even, I didn't even take it. I noted it, but I didn't even know where it was from. Um, some kind of program, it's called the Family Independence Initiative. We can we can look it up and provide a little background. But um, it was focusing on helping to build the strengths of people living in economically poor um, communities who are striving to improve their situation. Mm-hmm. I thought, that's great. But as I read the article more, um, I came to find out that the program was that they would pay $30 for every, um, quote, success that um, the people involved in the program had. So that could be... It's solving their own self-identified problems around debt, health, education, building skills, etc. And the the um, assessment of the program showed that household incomes from participants uh, went up 27% after two years, putting aside the 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 money that they were being paid as mm-hmm. part of the program. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of befuddled me a little bit because I was attracted to this, the, the fact that they were taking a so, so-called strength-based approach. But then it's such a market-based approach that, and such a behaviorist kind of approach that um, the way that you get people to change is by paying them to change. Um, and that relates closely to you know a lot that has been going on in education, particularly in New York, where um, Mayor Bloomberg has has piloted a you know program where they're paying for paying kids for grades. Um, Jeff Canada has taken on that program mm-hmm. and is has advocated um, paying kids for improvement in grades. And I, I'm not sure about test scores, but you know, academic mm-hmm. improvement. Um, and I, I probably already editorialized too much just from my tone, but I'm wondering what you, um, what you think about that kind of system or approach. Well, I guess I have I have two two thoughts on the on the on the matter. One is to play devil's advocate and essentially say, isn't that what middle and upper class families do right they just call it allowance mm-hmm. or cars mm-hmm. or <laughs> whatever you know exhibit the behavior that we want you to exhibit mm-hmm. and you get something for it um so that's that's one uh is to essentially say if, if that if for better or for worse it's just a tried and true way of providing incentives for changing behavior or for you know sort of guiding behavior in the direction that you want it to go should we basically you know give low-income families access to dollars to be able to do that with their kids or do that themselves. Mm -hmm. But I think what we've learned from any of those sort of pay-for-X programs is, is in general, what we've learned in the youth development space. I can get you in the door. The shiniest thing gets you in the door. So you'll you'll have young people say, I came for the basketball. Mm -hmm. I stayed for the relationships. Mm -hmm. It's going to be the same here. We're not going to pay them forever. So if I came because somebody said, we'll give you $25 or we'll put $25 in a bank account every time you do X, if I came for the money, the question is, did I stay because something coming for the money allowed me to come into a setting in which I had a chance to reflect on behaviors, learn skills, re, you know, reassess my priorities and make something happen mm-hmm. that, that lets me stay in this place because it makes sense. So if if the if the role in general of incentives is to is to move people along a path from extrinsic to intrinsic benefits, the test of these things is how quickly do they get you to the intrinsic benefit space, or in fact, do you revert right back to your old behaviors as soon as the extrinsic benefit is offered? So the market 
you know, the market, you know, approach says if you want people to change their behavior, pay them to change their behavior. Right. The, you know, the social psychology says, but if you want them to sustain that behavior after you finish paying them, you really have to use that time limited time in which you're paying them for the behavior to really bring them into a space in which they reflect on their behavior, change their priorities, build their skills, get rid of the barriers so that when they come out the other end, they're mm -hmm. going to stay on that path. Otherwise, it's not worth it. But I wonder also if, if there's a set of values that is being communicated in that, that um, if we're paying if we're paying kids to say read you know a book over the summer, paying per book, then isn't it saying that like reading the book isn't worth it? We recognize that reading the book isn't worth it on of its own um, value, but if you do it, you'll get five dollars or you'll get to play basketball. You know, oftentimes in the after school program, to put it back into that setting, mm -hmm. um, you know, if you finish your homework or if you finish the reading project or whatever it is that then you get to play basketball or go outside or whatever. And isn't that s sort of Im implicitly saying that um, playing basketball is more valuable than reading? It's sort of like the dessert. If you eat your vegetables, you get dessert. Right. So dessert's clearly better than vegetables. Well, I mean, the other way to that, again, the other way to say that is both of these things are important. Hmm. I mean, so assuming that whoever I am, the parent, the youth worker or whatever, assuming that, that, that you believe that you believe I'm credible enough, um, that I have a little bit more experience than you do. And I'm saying to you, a balance is important. And my job is to help you help you understand that a balance is important. Now, my definition of balance and your definition of balance may not be exactly the same, but in the time that I have with you, my job is to help you at least experience these things enough for you to conclude that a balance is important and for you to find the balance, mm -hmm. your own personal balance. So this is what I'm going to do. And essentially what I'm doing is I'm going to force you to try this. So I'm going to force you to figure out, you may not like broccoli, but you've got to figure out some vegetable in this vegetable category that you like enough to make sure you eat sufficient vegetables because that's what nutrition tells us. Mm -hmm. And no, you can't just eat dessert. So, I mean, I think in, in that context, it really does get down to the relationship. I mean, it gets down to the relationship and it, that, that the person who is dictating this is someone that the young person believes is credible, mm -hmm. believes has their overall self-interest in mind. It's not going to work if I'm, you know, the truant officer or whatever, just say, if it, if it comes in purely as punishment, I'm not going to learn anything. So if all we're doing is offering money rather than offering a negative, you know, the carrot rather than the stick, but it's coming in that enforcement space in which I'm not sharing my value base with you. I'm not suggesting that, I'm, that you should do this in self-interest. It's just being offered in a compliance mode. Mm -hmm. You're not going to learn anything from it. Um, so we, whether, whether, whether I, if all we're doing is saying, look, we've told kids if they don't do their homework, they fail and they get kicked out of school. That didn't work because they failed and they got kicked out of school. Now we're just going to flip over to this side and say, hey, if you do your homework, we'll pay you. Yes, if it's delivered in that message, mm -hmm. we haven't changed. We haven't changed anything. Right. You're just telling me, you're trying to get me to do a behavior that I don't want to do. Right. And you're continuing to change from carrot to stick mm -hmm. to figure out, you know, what the, what the magic thing is that gets me yeah. to do it. But you haven't engaged with me 
right. as a person to help me understand why it's important for me to do it. Mm-hmm. If we don't bring that piece in, if it's not an engagement piece mm-hmm. in which I really believe you've got my interest in mind, you're willing to talk with me and help me understand why you think this should be a priority, mm-hmm. then yeah, it's going to be a, it's going to stay in that compliance space. And as right. soon as you take away the incentive, whether it's a positive or a negative incentive, my behavior is going to go right back to where it was. Yeah, that that that's actually really helpful because I, I I tend to get um, so sort of uh, anti uh, behaviorist sort of models when I hear the carrot or the stick. You know, I'm um, I. I like to read Alfie Cohn and his book Punished by Reward sort of mm-hmm. blew my mind. I continue to go back to it and look at it. And, um, but it, it's, not, it's also not helpful to just dismiss that whole thing and just say, well, that's not, that's not credible. Um, and so that's a nice context to put it in because it brings it back to what I already know is the most important thing, which is the relationships. And, and that that's what it really creates engagement. Um, that the, you know, the interaction between young people and adults in programs, in schools, if that found, if that's not there as a foundation for the culture, for the environment of the setting, then whatever you're doing, whether you're trying to take this market-based approach or you're mm-hmm. trying to um, do extended learning or you're trying to integrate, um, you know, 21st century skills and academic content, none of that's going to work yeah. if those relationships aren't positive. The one more thing I want to ask you about is the larger um, policy context and debate in the country right now around education. Um, and I'll just tell you a brief story and ask you what you think of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the The story is that I was recently referred to as anti-education reform. And I, I, I laughed when I first heard it because I thought, how could, how did I get here? Like, how did I, how did we get to a place where I would be being called anti-education reform? And what they meant, what the person meant by it is that, um, that I'm a critical, I'm critical of things like the high stakes testing movement, things like, um, the some of the charter school models, not charter schools as a mm-hmm. system, but some of the charter, current charter school models, um, the um, you know m- what we've been talking about around a movement towards you know s- strictly looking at academic success as you know the the main thing that we need to strive for and at the expense mm-hmm. of everything else, um, and you know maybe one or two other pillars of this sort of what's what's called ed reform right mm-hmm. now, um, which is I think best embodied in Waiting for Superman. Um, you know, as they sort of best describe and the, the, the package of policies there that is being referred to as education reform. So they're saying that's education reform. And because I'm um, critical of some of those things, I'm anti-education reform. And at first I laughed, but then I got kind of mad because it was like, well, what does that mean? Then I, I want to keep things the way they are. Clearly, that's not right. how I feel. And so I, and, and it's hard to sort of argue with someone calling you anti something. Um, because then the, the, the only thing that comes to mind is, no, I'm not anti-education reform. I'm pro-education reform. And then that's a trick because education reform suddenly means something different than actually reforming education. It means a specific set of policy objectives. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tell you that little story and just wonder if, um, if you've ever encountered that um, and if you're, what you think of the, the, that broader context right now around what's being called education reform. No, I, I, I think you're right, um, uh, as you have been often throughout the interview. I think that's <laughs> – Nice of you um, to say. Well, it, I think especially – for some reason, especially at this particular point in time, I think political language is challenging to, to the, on the verge of frightening. The extent to which people grab a term, mm-hmm. twist it, have it mean a very specific thing, which, which essentially – 
discourages debate and discussion mm-hmm. and has you be for or against, for or against something, which is, which is a set of very specific strategies for which there really could be a lot of discussion about whether they work empirical and just, you know, right. uh, you know, sort of, you know, your own discussion about whether they work or not. Right. And so when, and we, we get to this place when the outcomes, when we move away from young people themselves as the metric, when we don't say our goal is to get young people ready, and this is what we mean by readiness. So we're looking at strategies that really help move the dial on these things. Do we have evidence that these strategies help move the dial? Mm-hmm. And not only if we're going to get young people ready, we have to now back up and define the environments that support readiness. Now, given all the research that we have, including the National Academy of Sciences, National Research Council book, which basically I argued but lost that it not be called community programs. Mm-hmm. This was back 2002, and they're thinking mm-hmm. about updating it. But it was called community programs that promote youth development. Okay. Had it just been called best practices to promote youth development, right? But you know, in some ways, in your you know, sort of as you describe it, the book was marginalized because it had two marginalized terms right. <laughs> in its title. Right. Even though what they did was to end up looking at research, uh, you know, across lots of settings where young people spend their time, community mm-hmm. programs, school settings, family settings, and pulling out that list of developmental characteristics that define what a good setting is. So we've used the and, and they also defined, defined what good outcomes were. So they did the work. Mm-hmm. National Academy of Sciences did the work that we asked for. But because it was bound in, you know, a volume mm-hmm. that talked about community programs and talked about youth development, it had pretty much zero impact on the education reform. I'm sure it was never read by 90% of the people in education reform. So, again, if the goal is to get young people ready and we have a definition of what that is, if the goal is to take the best of what we know about settings that get young people ready and ways to measure and improve readiness and look at that, then our reforms should be focused on increasing, on getting our settings up to the standards that are really, you know, sort of linked to the outcomes that we want to see for kids. So again, if we define outcomes narrowly as changes in test scores, Mm -hmm. we come back and define strategies very narrowly uh, in terms of things that increase test scores. We're in that space right now. We've allowed those things to happen so that the strategies that people are putting out, it, you don't have to dig very deep into the research to find arguments that those strategies are really not, not first of all, not terribly effective in producing the narrow outcome that you're looking for. So people are creaming and cheating and doing everything else to get their test scores up. Right. Um, and parents are complaining from both sides of the spectrum but also are really pretty toxic for any of the other outcomes that we want to see for young people. Mm-hmm. And they're really shifting the environments in which young people spend their time in ways that are making those environments toxic. So anti-education reform in the sense that the current package of reforms, you know, we think are not conducive to creating good environments that support youth development. Yeah. Yeah. But if it's a soundbite, right. we're stuck. Right. And I think right. we're just in that soundbite space mm-hmm. where, you know, people are arguing we have to do this because we've got like, – our kids have to be more competitive. Therefore, we have to do these things. Mm-hmm. I think, unfortunately, for everything that we know, um, the, the strategies that are often least effective or at least the strategies that, that run the risk of being ineffective when taken alone and sort of taken to excess – are the ones that sound the most logical. 
if we want to if we want kids to graduate from high school, you know, with these competencies, we really just need to increase, you know, we, we need to make sure that they're on track all the way through, which means we increase the number of times we ping them and test them, which means that then the folks in the class have a lot of incentive to increase whether the kids are doing well on the tests. Mm -hmm. All that sounds right, but we don't have enough debate about what that actually does to the culture of the classroom, what it or does the to the engagement of the kids, yeah. what it does to the enthusiasm of the teachers. We just don't yeah. have that. Con that Those conversations don't happen mm -hmm. in that soundbite space. Uh, so, I, you know, it, I think it's a larger problem that we have yeah. in this in this country that we we don't read, we don't go deep enough into issues, and we really don't have dialogue anymore. So I, you know, I congratulate you on actually trying to get dialogue back into everything from conferences to conversation. Yeah, because um, yeah, we don't thanks. do it. That's really what this is is about: is that frustration with not having that kind of dialogue. And um, I personally kind of blame George Bush because it's uh, it's that you're either with us or against us mentality mm -hmm. that really took hold somehow. It really did sink in. And it, it seemed, I guess it was so effective as a tactic, as a political tactic, that um, people from all sides of the political spectrum yeah. um, grabbed onto it. Yeah. And that, that sort of manipulation of language and, like you said, defining, yeah. defining things in a specific way. You know, I think it's been, it, it's been interesting and, for me, heartening to see Diane Ravitch sort of over the yeah. years just sort of say, hey, hey, enough is enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I started a lot of this stuff, and I don't agree with where it's gone. Mm -hmm. um, and we really, it's time to pull back and really get back into dialogue and debate and, and be honest about whether these things are really having, you know, having the positive impact that we expected them to have right. and or whether the negative impacts are really out, yeah. you know, outweighing it. But we, you know, not that she was an extremist, but when you've got folks like that who right. are really, really getting concerned about how far down a path we're going, right. it, it is time for us to come back. And I'm, I'm glad that We've got folks on both sides calling for yeah. us to get back to a place of reason. And it's it, yeah, it was hugely inspiring for me that that she was bold enough to you know write the book and go out speaking about you know I, I've I see things differently now. I've changed my mind about some things, not just because she agrees more with the way I see things, mm -hmm. but also just because it it sort of gives permission for being able to say you know what I might have been wrong about that. I might be wrong about this. I'm still working on it. Um, and that's a useful way to have a fruitful conversation is to mm -hmm. not be totally sure um, and to be willing to inform your perspective through your interactions with others, for, through research, through your own experiences. And she did that in this big public way. Yeah, it was a, it was a brave, yeah. brave move. <laughs> you are the keynote speaker at the Bridge Conference, which is happening on October 17th and 18th in Seattle. Um, this year. And as you know, the Bridge Conference is uh, sponsoring this episode of Please Speak Freely and a couple of other episodes of Please Speak Freely. Um, I've spoken already on on previous episodes about the, the value that I see in the Bridge Conference um, and why I feel good sort of affiliating with that conference. Um, I know you've spoke spoken at a lot of conferences. You, I'm sure, participate in a lot of conferences. I'm wondering, you know, why uh, choose to keynote at the Bridge Conference. Uh, what do you see as the value in that particular setting? Well, I, I think two things. One, um, it, it really is it really is important to me, uh, uh, even as I get busier, to make sure um, that uh, that I stay connected uh, to the field broadly defined, and that the organization stays connected to the field. Uh, and so, while I can't go to fifty go keynote fifty conferences, mm -hmm. um, I really do make a practice of of you know, saying yes uh, yeah. to some. And I think 
you know, let's just starting with the idea of a bridge conference. I, I think conferences that really do strive from the beginning to bring together, you know, practitioners with folks who aren't frontline practitioners, folks who are coming from different settings to work on these issues, that's just intuitively appealing to me. That's the place where we, we, we start dialogue and we need to have uh, those, those kind of conferences and those kind of, of conversations. So whether it's sort of over in the prevention space where you've got folks that are bringing together people from pregnancy prevention with violence prevention and substance abuse prevention to talk, or it's in the broader out-of-school space where we're really trying to bridge in and out um, and different areas of practice, those are the kind of conversations that I'm attracted to, and those are the kind of conversations that I want to support as much as possible. Great. Well, I look forward to, to seeing you there at the Bridge Conference. I'll be there um, recording a sort of live episode of, of Please Speak Freely and also screening the film Race to Nowhere um, as my session. Good. Um, so, you know, I look forward to seeing you there. And I just want to thank you again for, for doing this. It's been a really uh, fruitful conversation for me. I've learned a lot, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And thank you for listening to this episode of Please Speak Freely. Tune in next time when I'll be talking to Dr. Paul Heckman of UC Davis School of Education. Paul is a longtime mentor and friend of mine who's taught me a lot about how people learn and what's important to focus on in our field. And we had a thoughtful conversation, and I can't wait to get that next episode up. So stay tuned. Whoa.